Being a mother is an attitude, not biology. An unknown writer once said, if you give me any three words, I'll write you a story about my mother. Story is in our DNA, and of course, so is she. We gathered stories from men and women in all walks of life. Stories about the ones we have, the ones we are, the ones we know. This includes stories about stepmothers, godmothers, grandmothers, birth moms, foster moms, the mom up the street. It includes stories about not being a mom and stories about mothering in other ways. No matter how you slice it, if it's not one thing, it's your mother. Hi everybody, I'm Lupe Padilla Mitchell. I'm a life coach of mothers and families and a mother of three adult daughters. I'm Katie Mitchell, actress, writer, storyteller, and mom of a teenage son. Imagine instantly you're eight months pregnant. In this adoption story, our guest Ben Barnes reads an excerpt from his book, We. He shares how he and his husband came to be parents and how the mother of his child made them a we. We talk about no matter how our children come to us, there is a greater plan that can't be explained it could only be experienced. In addition to being the author of We, an adoption and a memoir, Ben is a film and television producer of such things as Cake, starring Jennifer Aniston, and Lonesome Tonight, about Elvis and Priscilla Presley's love affair. And we are thrilled to have him. Hi, Ben. Hi. Hi, you guys. It's so great of you to join us. I am thrilled to join you, so thank you for having me. You're welcome. Uh, we want to just start by having you give us a little bit of background um, yeah. about what we're about to hear. Like book. set it up a little bit Yeah, for just us. set it up. Tell us about the birth mother of it all. <laughs> okay, so where do I begin? My husband and I have been together for over 20 years. Uh, 18 years ago, we started talking about uh, wanting a child. For us being very clear that we wanted to adopt found a lawyer, got into all of that, and moved ahead with that and got introduced to a phenomenal woman from the middle of the United States. And she came to Los Angeles two months before her child was due so we could be with her and take care of her and get to know her. Our daughter was born on September 8th, 2001. Mm. September 11th happened three days uh, later. And then following day, the biological father, who had been silent for basically the entire pregnancy, called our lawyer to tell him that he was going to contest the adoption. So we spent the next six months in litigation while raising our daughter, not knowing whether or not we were going to keep our daughter. And the book that I wrote, we chronicles that period of time. So from the birth mother's arrival to Los Angeles through the trial. And then it goes back and forth in time to me growing up in New York City in the 1980s during the height of AIDS, where I realized two things. I realized I wanted to be a father above anything else. And also growing up during the height of AIDS and thinking I would probably be dead from AIDS before I even had the opportunity to be a father. So the story sort of goes back and forth between those two periods of time. And you tell it so beautifully, and I can only say to anybody listening, go read his book, We. So the section that I'm reading is early on in the book, 
And it's the morning of the day that our birth mother arrives in Los Angeles. Maybe not that casual, Daniel jokes as he stands in the doorway of our room. He's just returned from a morning run and sweat drips off him. I'm in a pair of boxers and a t-shirt. Clothes are spread out all over the bed. In an hour, we will get in the car to pick up Emma at the airport. In an hour, we will meet our birth mother for the first time. In an hour, nothing will be the same. You're so funny, I snap, though I know he's teasing. I don't know what to wear. It seems important somehow, first impressions and all that. Keep it simple, he says, and drops his wet t-shirt into the hamper before he heads off to the shower. Keep it simple, I repeat, irritated by his calm demeanor. Sadie begins to bark loudly in the backyard, and Daniel shouts at her, Sadie, stop barking! And like that, I feel better. He isn't so calm. How could he be? A stranger hurtles towards us at 500 miles per hour carrying our child. Once she lands, Daniel and I will no longer be just a couple ever again. Once her plane touches ground, our relationship will forever be altered. I force myself to concentrate on this stranger, on Emma. She must be terrified. I think about the ability to trust, to choose hope instead of doubt, and it hits me. If we're going to make it through this experience intact, we have to trust one another. Daniel is right. Keep it simple. I grab my favorite pair of jeans and leave the choice of a shirt for later. One of the tricky things about being in a gay relationship is keeping our looks separate, not too matchy-matchy. One of us can choose a sweater so as not to match the other's button down or a pair of jeans instead of khakis, but that is about the best we can do. Ravenously hungry, I cross the hall and enter the kitchen. Emma's plane is scheduled to land in two hours. I've been tracking it since it took off. Daniel and I have jobs, pay our bills, own a house, but this is next level. This is adult. We are in charge of this situation. No one else. Get it together, I think. Keep it simple. I grind coffee beans and pour water into the machine. I wander into the dining room and pick up the New York Times Daniel has left on the table. I glance at the headlines, but I'm too distracted to understand them, so I drop the newspaper back onto the table and walk in back into the kitchen. Daniel stands in front of the coffee machine with a mischievous grin on his face. Were you waiting to turn this on, he asks. Piss off, I say, and push him out of the way. Be gentle, I'm close to the edge. Maybe you should get a massage, he jokes. Or, or we could go see a movie. All excellent ideas, I say, but let's say we drive out to the airport and meet the woman carrying our baby. I like it, he says. My hunger vanishes and the thought of food makes me sick. I want to shout from the rooftop and tell everyone within earshot that we are about to have a baby, but it is too soon for that. So instead, we do what we do on any given morning. We make the bed and drink our coffee. But this morning is not any other morning. This morning changes everything. Twenty minutes later, Daniel pushes his chair back from the table and says, Get dressed, we should go. I choose a dark blue, short-sleeved, button-down shirt as Daniel has claimed the black jeans and a faded green polo. We put Sadie out in the yard and lock the front door. Things are going to be different when we return to this house, I say, as he backs out of the driveway. Very, he agrees. Traffic is light and we arrive at the airport with time to spare. We park the car and make our way to get to her gate, which is fairly empty. Should we have brought her something? Some flowers, maybe, I ask, as we find seats near a large glass window overlooking the tarmac. You think? That seems awkward. You're right. She's not a contestant on a game show. I stand up. I can't sit still. Do we hug her? We should hug her. Daniel looks at me. Maybe that's too much. Too intimate? I can't stop talking. No, it's good. We should hug her, Daniel says. Jesus, what must she be thinking now? Daniel shrugs. Relief, I hope. I sit back down. We fall into silence. 
so many thoughts running through my mind. Who is this woman? What does she look like? Is she having a boy or a girl? Do I care? What will it be like to parent with Daniel? Have we discussed this enough? Might she change her mind after the baby is born? Will she like us? A plane pulls up to the gate. She's here, I say to myself, and press my hand to the window. Daniel joins me. What if we don't recognize her, Daniel asks. I mean, we've only seen a grainy fax of her driver's license. An agent opens the door. We'll keep our eyes peeled for the blonde, pregnant woman who looks scared out of her mind. There's a garbled announcement about the baggage claim carousel and a delayed connection to San Jose. You're standing too close, I whisper. What? You're standing too close. Move back. He looks back at me for a moment. Really? Yes, give her space. He steps back, which allows a balding middle-aged man to slip in and take his place. Better? Yes. Gives us a moment to take each other in. A trickle of people emerges from the walkway, then nothing. Those of us still waiting take a collective step forward. Despite the fact that Emma's driver's license listed her height 5'6 and weight 120, I find myself looking for a heavy woman. Otherwise, how is she just starting to show? Then she walks out and everything starts to unfold very slowly and also very quickly. Is this the moment I lost control of time? Her beauty takes me by surprise. Her long blonde hair frames her oval face. Her eyes are green. She wears a loose-fitting t-shirt, and now I understand why it's hard to tell she's pregnant. Her swollen breasts allow her shirt to hang loosely over her stomach. For a split second, I wonder if we're looking at the wrong woman until she raises her hand and gives me a small wave. Of course, she knows what we look like. We sent her our book full of photos. Of course she is relieved. Of course we should hug her, I think, as I wrap my arms around her. I swear I feel a weight lift from her shoulders. She is no longer alone. Or perhaps the relief is mine. Welcome to California, I say, and step back. Thanks, she says quietly. Daniel hugs her. You must be so tired. You've been up since five this morning, right? Yeah, and yes, I am, she says. I appreciate her honesty. Let's get your bags, Daniel says, and your cats, I add. We walk toward baggage claim, and I trail a couple of steps behind. I want to record this moment in my mind. The first time I see our child's biological mother, her physical presence makes everything vivid and real, which is both terrifying and heartbreaking. The wait for her bags feels interminable, the small talk excruciating. She is spent. We are all out of our element, and ultimately we are strangers. Strangers with a massive, intimate experience, which has only just begun. This is not going to be easy. Her bags arrive, and we head off to retrieve her cats. We park just outside an enormous cargo hold not far from the terminal. The hangar looms before us like something out of a sinister sci-fi movie. Inside does not disappoint. It is dark and vast and empty and freezing cold. I can tell Emma is overwhelmed and exhausted. She wants to see her cats, something she knows, something she loves. She doesn't move. We are the parents. We must take charge. Hi, Daniel says to the woman working behind the counter. We're picking up three cats. Murphy? He turns around and smiles at Emma. Wait here, the woman says, and then speaks into the walkie-talkie. Murphy, pick up. Something about her tone is off. Daniel and I catch each other's eyes. They'll be right out, she says, with definite hesitation. You must be excited to see them, I say to Emma, choosing to ignore my uneasiness. I pray her cats aren't dead. They've never flown before, she says nervously. I hope they're all right. Then everything happens at once. I'm sure they're fine, I say, just as the pungent stench of cat shit fills the air. The woman behind the counter says, it seems one of your cats had an accident. There are two cats in one crate. The other is alone. The woman attempts to step away from the smell, but there's no escaping it. 
Daniel and I avoid looking at one another. The day moves from the surreal to the absurd. No one speaks as the woman pushes the paperwork across the counter. Daniel signs it and slides it back. We all nod at one another and step out of the hangar, grateful for the fresh air. Emma looks as though she might cry. Thankfully, the cat that flew alone is the one who shat himself. I count this as a blessing. It could have been twice as bad. There's a pet store on our way back to your apartment, I tell Emma, as we place the cats as far back in the car as possible. We'll get him cleaned right up. I feel bad, she says. This is not how any of us wanted to begin, and we awkwardly comfort her. He'll be like new, Daniel says. We pull out of the lot and roll down every window. I recall something about cat shit and pregnant women. Pregnant women are not supposed to handle cat shit but can smell it, or they're not supposed to smell it but they can touch it, but they can touch it. I can't remember. I try not to panic. I think about throwing the cat out the window to protect our child. Despite the air, the smell is unbearable. I can't breathe. Sweet mother of God. I blurt out and add a quick laugh. Daniel glares at me. I turn around and hope for a conspiratorial smile, but Emma gives no indication she even heard me. After we drop your cat off, we'll show you your place and give you some time to settle in, I say, hoping to give her something else to think about. We come to a stop at a red light, heading north on La Cienega Boulevard. A massive black Escalade pulls up alongside our car. I glance out the window and see a hipster with a shaved head, goatee, and inked right arm. He grins at me and gives me a sup, head nod. Oh, I let out, as I realize the guy's getting a blowjob. The guy has one hand on the wheel, while the other one rests on top of the head of a blonde woman. Daniel looks at me and I direct him with my eyes to the Escalade. Never has a red light taken so long to change. I feel my level of panic rise from the collective anxiety, from the smell of the cat shit, from the blowjob in the car next to us. In my oxygen-deprived mind, I convince myself that Emma will decide this is an unfit place for her child to grow up. She will insist that we turn the car around and drive her and her shit-covered car back to the airport. Welcome to Los Angeles. Finally, the light turns green. (laughs) That's it. That's great. It's so wonderful. I have to say that I'm moved by um, how there are no accidents, maybe, or how our kids do choose us, or whatever those adages are that people throw around, because that's sort of what I was taking away while you were reading this. That was one of the things, anyway, was, you know, are there accidents? Is it just by chance? I don't think so. Uh, I could not agree with you more. I actually got a Facebook message from a woman who who had read the book and who emailed me about her process through adoption and how it took her so long to find a birth mother and the complications that she had and how she now has this beautiful little daughter. And she said basically the same thing. And I just feel so certain that however your child comes to you, whether it's surrogacy, adoption, Mm -hmm. you know, not adoption, you're having you're with a partner and you have a baby, like that child finds you. And as my children have grown older, I feel more certain of that uh, because I think what they're here to teach you Mm -hmm. is not accidental. Definitely. You know, what struck me about it is that so many of those same feelings that I was having being pregnant or preparing my husband and I to have our girls, you had it. I, I think my favorite line is trust, choose hope instead of doubt. Mm. And I was wondering for you, you know, when you're pregnant, it's always that third month marker. If you could pass that third month marker, you're safer, close to four. 
And a lot of women just wait to tell anybody or uh, to tell too many people. Did you have a waiting time? We did not, because the crazy thing about adoption is suddenly we got a phone call. And then a week later, she chose us as her the parents of her child. Mm -hmm. And suddenly we were eight months pregnant. Mm -hmm. So she was already pretty far along in her pregnancy. So suddenly within a 24 hour period of time, we had to tell people we had to go out and find somewhere for her to live. We had to find a gynecologist because we're two men and we don't have a gynecologist. And, you know, that gynecologist helped us find a place to give birth. So we didn't have that. What we did have, and maybe we had it post-birth, was because of the biological father stepping forward, we were pretty private with all of that information because it was such a slow drip of information. He sort of called and then he had 30 days to actually file something. So he wasn't filing something for so many days that we were hoping it was going to sort of go away and he was going to not pursue the case. So once he did, then things started moving pretty quickly. But during that period of time, I would say, is when we chose to sort of stay very quiet because it was a complicated time, right? It was after 9-11. And then on top of it, So many people have complicated feelings about adoption. And then so many people had so many complicated feelings about what their fear of adoption and what we were then suddenly going through. We found we were receiving a little bit of pity, which is not a fun emotion to be the recipient of. Mm -hmm. So we sort of hunkered down and sort of kept, you know, people knew what was going on, but we kept uh, most of the information to ourselves at that point. Does that answer your question? Oh, definitely. By the way, it is the same of holding your breath of not sure this baby will, you know, I almost said pan out, but that's certainly not what I meant. Yes. Stay your child. Stay your child. I've had a miscarriage and I understand that feeling of holding on and not sure if you're going to tell the next time you're pregnant and how long to wait and all that. Yeah. So um, how long was that? unknowing period before you realized she is absolutely our child and someone cannot come for her? It was um, six months. So she was born September 8th and our trial date was, I've sort of blocked it out a little bit, but I, I believe it was March 5th or 6th. So during that entire period of time, there was we had to hire a lawyer in the state where she was born in order to get the jurisdiction moved to California because both of the biological parents were in a different state. And once we did that, we had to hire a lawyer here in Los Angeles. And then there were depositions. So it was a huge legal and a lot of outpouring of money that we did not um, know was going to be happening. Next subject is now that your children are, you know, people, what do they think about the book you wrote? And certainly your daughter, Zelda, what does she think about you telling her story? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, she is a profoundly talented writer on her own. Hmm. It's kind of, she's an amazing fiction writer. Hmm. Um, and she has known the story clearly, I guess not clearly, but Daniel and I forever have 
chosen to let her and her brother, they have different biological parents, but know the story of their birth and their biological parents. So it wasn't a surprise to her when she read the book, but there were certainly details in it that she didn't know. And of course, there were so many details of my life when I was growing up that she didn't know. But interestingly, she, well, first of all, it's funny because she read an early draft first and she had her main note was grammar and spelling for me. <laughs> so uh, she she corrected a lot of that. But then once the book came out and she reread it, she had, she was, I think she loved, I think she loves it that her story is out there in the world. She didn't have, like, it was interesting to me because I was a little nervous about it, even though she knew the story. Um, but I think it's different when you put it on paper. and. But her whole thing was, I don't have any, she has no emotional connection, right, to being zero to six months old. So to her, it was almost like reading about someone else. Um, yeah. So that was sort of an interesting response. She's also a very level-headed kid, probably more level-headed than I have ever been in my entire life. And my son is in the middle of reading it right now and is... Oh. Um, his main thing is that he's annoyed that he's not in the book. <laughs> so I might, I might have to write a second book for him, which I'm trying to figure out what that might be about. Um, and then I would just add the, the best thing that happened was um, I stay in touch with both of our children's birth mothers. Cause I always feel like if a time comes that they want to get in touch with them, I always want to be able to do that immediately. Um, neither of them have wanted to at this point, but may at some point. Um, so, uh, Emma knows, knew about the book cause I had emailed her to say that I was doing this and I just wanted her to be aware of it. And was she cool? And I asked her some questions that I wanted some answers to. Mm -hmm. And I sent her the book and she wrote me back the most moving, touching, beautiful email about how much it meant to her to have her story out there. and what the book meant to her. And she also just said the, that she was, she said, I was so tense throughout the whole thing, which surprised her, even though she clearly, of course, knows the outcome, which mm -hmm. um, I was really touched by. Yeah. That, that's why I didn't want to say too much about what happens in it, because it really is such a wonderful ride. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Did I say too much? I hope I'm not giving it. I don't think I did. Okay. No, 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 no. Okay. <laughs> Not at all. Okay. Not at all. What's the difference in age of your kids? Uh, two years. My daughter is 17 now and our son is 15. Hmm. Yeah, it's a great age. I have a 16-year-old. Boy or girl? Boy. Yeah. It's so funny just to take it back to where we started of how our children do choose us and for the lessons and everything. I feel that absolutely 100% except every time I think about my parents, I think... I couldn't possibly have chosen those people. <laughs> so, wanted to just ask you one more thing about Emma because, you know, if it's not one thing, it's your mother being the name of the podcast and, yes. and you, are, you are mothering these children. And yet this woman gave you this gift, not just of the baby, but she gave you something else, didn't she? I mean, what would you say you got from Emma besides this beautiful Zelda? What an interesting question. 
Um, it, it's so stupid. I could lead you where I what I want you to talk about. I'm going to go where I think you're leading. Okay. Yes, good. You go. And, you do you. Good. That's and what we'll I see. If I followed you, and if not, lead away. It's interesting. I'm going to just jump back for two seconds to say, Daniel's nephew's getting married in a year and a half. Mm-hmm. And they were deciding whether or not they wanted to have a ceremony or not. And if they were actually going to call it a wedding. And I said to them, the thing that I don't think you can realize until you are in something is always a challenge, right? So mm-hmm. I said, what I found so profound in that experience was having to stand up and declare something in front of people mm-hmm. who I love. So I was saying to him, I think you you cannot understand the power of that until you are in that moment. I think what Emma gave Daniel and I, which I don't think you can know until you are in it is, and why I called this book We, is she made Daniel and I a we. We moved from being a couple, which is a glorious thing no diminishing of people who do not have children because I don't think everyone should or needs to have children. But if you want to, what she gave us was something larger than I ever knew. And I think, nor can you know until you were in it. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. My, um, one was of my I daughters met? got married in the summer and my husband's, um, you know, the father of the bride speech, it was about, in this moment, they are here for each other. But the day they give birth, something else happens altogether. And um, it just what you were saying just kind of reminded me of um, his speech mm. to our daughter. Mm-hmm. That some there is a there's a big shift. Yes, exactly. And I think it's so profound and life altering. But I don't think there's a way to understand or clearly experience that shift until it happens. I agreed. Well, well, like so many things in life. Yes. You know. Yes, exactly. So anyway, um, I, I just want to thank you again so much for being a part of this. Yeah, that was, that was great. Thank you. I am so honored to be a part of uh, your podcast and congratulations to both of you on launching it. What an exciting time. You are both becoming, with this, a we. Yes. A new we for the two of you. Absolutely. And giving birth all the time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We get to tell these mother stories from so many angles. They're all very different. Mm. And we love that. I know. Every single story makes us better people. And hopefully we are going to be able to keep sharing that. What a great, what a great thing to share. Yeah. Thanks. Well, Ben... Loved meeting you. Thank you both so much. That's our show. Take care. Bye-bye. And to find out more about our writers, go to our website, Instagram, or Twitter. If it's not one thing, it's your mother. And that's the number one, not the word one. Want to do something to help us? Go wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review us. Five stars would be nice. You can say something complimentary. Because you know what? It really does help other people find our show. And also share us with a friend because word of mouth is the best compliment.